Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Welcome, everybody. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and are preparing for a prosperous new year. I know I'll be seeing some of you next month at CAX, Cadabra, Axtel. Speaking of, I'd like to thank our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions, the cat, the axe half of CAX, and the Tangent Bound Network. Find fantastic podcasts at tangentboundnetwork.com, and all your entertainment needs are at axtel.com, where you can find out more about CAX, and of course, for even more about the Cadabra Axtel combined conference in California, which is half work and half play, let's be honest, cadabra.org, K-I-D-A-B-R-A.org. Today, I welcome someone I was half turned on to and half reminded of by a friend of mine, Mr. Jim Stafford. You all know I'm a big fan of Jim's, and now I'm lucky enough to count him as a friend. Well, I just got back from Branson, Missouri, not too long ago, where I was visiting with Jim, among some other business, and while we were talking, he told me about Jeannie Robertson. Now, the name sounded familiar, and when I got home and had and had time, I looked her up, and it turns out I have been a fan of hers for a long while. Jeannie Robertson is a true grandma gone viral with tens of millions of hits on YouTube. She may even be up into the hundreds of millions of hits by now, but you get to tens of millions and I think you kind of stop counting after that because you know you are a grandma gone viral. Now, she is not a traditional stand-up comic. She never set foot on a comedy club stage while coming up. And I think she actually, you know, uh, her and Jim, the reason we were talking, is one of their booking agents. They have the same booking agent. And I think they have that kind of in common. Jim isn't a traditional stand-up either. He he does more. He has the music and the instruments and all the, all the awesome stuff that I'm just in such in awe of. But Jeannie, when it comes to what she does, she is top of her game as a storyteller. She chooses every word perfectly. We even talk a little bit about this in the interview. And she has made a name for herself over the past five decades as a humorist on the convention and corporate speaking circuit. Preferring longer form stories about her family, friends, and Southern life, Robertson does not refer to herself as a stand-up comic. Other people try to label that and try to fit her in a box, but I don't that's not what she does, and I, I don't even think it really fits either. Her brand has evolved around being a clean, humorous speaker. The one time Miss North Carolina began her speaking career after winning her crown, and she was required to spend that year touring around the region. She tells the story in another interview that, you know, she would have to go do these ribbon-cutting ceremonies, and she'd tell the people that would book her, well, I'll do 20 or 30 minutes if you want, <laughs> which I think is just great, because over 50 years later, this present day, Robertson is still making people all over the country laugh out loud. She speaks openly with me about embracing new technology that has helped her continue to build her brand. While her colleagues may have rested on their laurels after decades in the corporate speaking industry, Robertson explains in this interview why she was so excited to explore the new frontier that is the internet. Robertson has become a true bona fide celebrity through using YouTube not to create YouTube-specific content, but to release clips of her multiple DVDs, which are, by the way, available at JeannieRobertson.com, J-E-A-N-N-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-S-O-N.com. There's no I in there, J-E-A-N-N-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-S-O-N.com. Now, Thanks to that fame on YouTube, she tours theaters around the country with her brand of storytelling humor. 
It is yet another new frontier for Jeannie, whose public shows have been few and far between while her focus was on corporate dates. It's exciting, she says, to think that she can sell out large theaters in the South after decades as a private speaker. An open book and easy to talk to, I would have hoped. She won Ms. Congeniality at the 1963 Miss America pageant, after all. Jeannie reveals how she found her worth as a speaker and what led to her decision to go full-time into speaking after nine years as a basketball coach. And, of course, we talk about a whole lot more. Because this interview, I haven't really done a lot of, like, in-the-weeds, show-busy, if you want to do it, this is what you do, and this is how it happened for me, type of interview in a long while. And boy, she went way over time, and I'm grateful for it. Whenever I tell them half an hour, and if they choose to stay longer, that is their choice. I do not shut anybody down. And boy, I am glad she spent the full 45 minutes with me. And I should say, I stopped tape, and I shouldn't. I, I, I'm honest. I say, okay, we stopped tape, and we really do stop tape. But that's when the real fun, not that the interview wasn't fun, but you, you, you think you've had the most fun you can have, and then she spent another half hour with me just talking about a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, in the weeds with show business and the way she builds her brand. And she is just a smart, smart cookie. And I'm, I'm so happy that she's still going. So here now with advice for anyone that wants to skip the comedy clubs and make a living working in a well-paying corporate environment, our interview with Jeannie Robertson. Mrs. Jeannie Robertson, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. And, uh, Look forward to talking to you. I'm so glad to be talking to you. Now, before we jump in, I have to ask, I, I can't believe I'm going to call him this, but I've been watching a lot of your videos, and I know, so I feel like I know you and I know him. I have to ask, before we jump into your career, how is left brain today? <laughs> he's, he's doing fine. He's not around right now. He just went somewhere. But for your for your listeners, I guess I was, I've been speaking since 1963, and in the 90s, as you get older, your material changes, of course, and as you change in life. And in one of my shows, I referred to my husband, Jerry, as left brain, and the reaction from the audience was so great. I remember thinking, i got to get off stage and get to a tablet and pen. This help. This is too good of an idea. So you are, he's a good sport, and, and he even does things sometime now, and he says, you you might could use that. <laughs> and I do, believe me, I do. So he's doing fine, and I'll tell him you ask about him. Well, that's wonderful. Now, how did this whole speaking thing start for you? You were Ms. North Carolina uh, back there in the 60s, and did you consider yourself a natural speaker? How did it start for you? No. I, I, actually, I think when I was in it, I'm not sure what they call it now. I was miss, It was called Miss, and I know that some people, that's controversial now, but that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And it was to lead to the missile, um, as we say in the South, the missile miracle pageant. <laughs> and I was a rising junior at, at Auburn University in Alabama. Yes. And uh, the JCs in my little town, Graham, North Carolina, mm-hmm. asked if I would come home and enter the Miss Graham pageant. At that time, the JCs sponsored all the pageants in this state, and the money went to do things they needed to do in the town. And I, it appealed to me. It had appealed to me. They asked me when I was a senior in high school. They asked me when I was a freshman at Auburn. And Mother said, you have no talent. And I said, well, I'm going to get some. And I got <laughs> thought was some talent. It was pitiful. And um, I came home one weekend, and I, they were, there were six of us. We all knew each other from high school. We, we saw they had five trophies on the 
table. We said, we might want to, we need to draw this. One of us is going to be just sitting, standing out here on the stage when this is over. We got just five trophies and six of us in it. But we went on and had it instead of drawing for it. And I won it. And then I went to the Miss North Carolina. Pageants were very, very big then. Kennedy later got shot that year. Mm-hmm. Vietnam came. Pageants didn't have the uh, the glow that they had at that time, but it was really big. And the Miss North Carolina pageant had 80 contestants, each of whom had won from her town. And it was on statewide TV. And I was six feet, two inches tall, and my talent was funny, supposedly. I, I was singing the best I could, but <laughs> it was funny. And um, wound up at the Miss America pageant. Did not win, was named Miss Congeniality, but at that time and still now, although the young women are a little older and usually take a sabbatical from work, you were expected to drop out of college for a year and tour. And it took me a week to realize if I said something funny Mm -hmm. and they laughed, I loved it. And so that's what I began to do is just go around the state. And here I was six foot two, which was our ways of interesting. That's of interest. Excuse me. That still holds the record as the tallest contestant to have ever competed. That also makes me the tallest to ever lose in the Miss America pageant. (laughs) And um, I had a big break. I won't go on and on about it, but uh, the JCs put on the pageant every year and, um, and they needed fillers. So what they did, this was this, this typical of what they were doing, they would bring back contestants who didn't win, say, the year or two years before, and bring them back on stage for the, when the girls changed from swimsuit to, to a talent or to whatever. But the problem with that was that sometimes the ones who were runner-ups or very talented from the year before would come back, and they were better than the ones in the top ten. Oh, wow. So if you were playing the piano and you were really good, but they brought back a pianist from a couple of years earlier who was terrific, the contestants were shown up. <laughs> and so they decided, wouldn't it be great in December? I won in the summer, and in December they asked me to come to Raleigh to discuss the four-night pageant when I would crown the next young woman. And their plan was, and I bought into it so fast, and I was 19 and then I turned 20 that year, um, was for me to sit off stage or in the front row. And any time the mistress of ceremonies uh, needed a filler, she'd say, Jeannie, you're up. And the mistress of ceremonies was a, gr- a great, fantastic young woman and had graduated from Vanderbilt, with this, had been Miss America. But she wasn't an ad-libber or, or she wasn't funny. And uh, she was glad to have me do that. Well, I did that for four nights, the invitation, and, on, and actually on statewide TV. Wow. They, this was pre-computer, so the judges actually got up and walked out of the auditorium to select on live television to go to a little room and select the final person. So I got to come out on stage and do 15 minutes and uh, something like that. And the minute every night was over before you get off stage, Parents of the contestants from all over the state were coming up, and at that time, mainly men, saying, I'm chairman of the Rotary Ladies Club night, big banquet in our town. Could you string these stories together and just come and um, speak for us? And I said, well, sure. And as Miss North Carolina, I had been paid for every speech, and I made more than 500 that year. 
Now, my speaking fee was $35 for the JCs, 50 for other clubs, 100 for corporate. That was it. But to me, that was a lot of money. Mainly, it was a great opportunity. Then they called about January or February and said, on Tuesday night, before the four nights of competition start, we have a banquet for all the parents. Now, now just think, 80 contestants from all over the state. And we have a banquet for all the Raleigh, North Carolina business people who have supported bringing this here because, listen, they fill the hotels, they brought flowers. You know, this was a, a money-making thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And could you just speak at the banquet? We've always brought in a former Miss America, but could you just do those, you know, just go on and do the Tuesday night banquet? So now they were asking me at age 20 to do the Tuesday night banquet for at least 30 to 35 minutes and then fill any time they needed it for four nights. And you, you just don't, you cannot buy that kind of an opportunity. That's amazing. Yeah. It, you, you can't do it. So I, I literally crowned the next Miss North Carolina and the following week spoke at four meetings within the state. That's and then I just looked back. I just kept going. Now I went back to school, graduated from Auburn, taught, but I was trying to teach and speak. And after nine years of teaching, the speaking had grown so big that I just chose that was better for me to do. I was using my sick days to <laughs> yeah. go speak and then going to school sick when I got sick. And I loved teaching. I loved coaching. I loved all that. But the speaking really just took over. And I've always said, people say, well, being in a pageant, being in a pageant doesn't give you a career, mm-hmm. but it does give you the opportunity to develop some skills that you might can use in what you want to do. Well, that and could, I didn't know it was, that speaking was a possibility, but I just fell into it. And that kind of leads into my next question. You had throughout that first year, year and a half, that you were doing all of this stuff for the Miss America pageant, the Miss North Carolina stuff. Why did you decide to go off and go back to school and teach? Why didn't that sabbatical year continue for you? What was the thought process? Well, I, it, wasn't, it was not, it never entered my mind that I wouldn't go back and back to Auburn and get my college degree oh, wow. and yeah. and thought I would teach. Remember, the mm-hmm. cassette had not been invented. Mm-hmm. My my promotional materials were on that pur- purple ink, you're too young, I'm afraid, but maybe <laughs> not purple mimograph ink yeah. in the school that I would slip in there in the afternoon and run off a sheet of paper, and then you always smelled it because it smelled so good, that purple ink. <laughs> and the... Uh, the uh, so this, I had won. I'd won enough scholarship money to pay for my last two years in school. Oh wow! So the whole thing was, the pageant is is an interesting organization, but it is and still is to this day. I'm sure. I believe I've read it not long ago. The largest scholarship foundation for women in the world, mm-hmm. and that that's because they can include all the scholarship money given at the local pageants, but in those franchises. And so I had won enough money. In um, Miss America, Miss Congeniality, Miss North Carolina, to pay my last two years. Now, I'm not going to be somebody who says, and that's what enabled me to go to school. No, I, I was going to go to school. Mother and Daddy had it fixed for me to save mm-hmm. for me to go to school. But there was a lot of pride in paying your own way. Exactly. There was a lot of pride in knowing I could say I paid for my last two years. Of course, Daddy, when we started having these gowns made for a six foot two woman. He started saying, "Well, the you know we're about going to break even on this whole thing. We should have made." But the experience, 
So um, you were just expected to, to go on back to school. And at that time, I don't have the, didn't have the network to get speeches. I wouldn't have known how other than in North Carolina and uh, didn't know how to get to Missouri and California and Oregon. And I figured it all out on my own later. But times changed. Word spread. And, of course, we've had um, I don't want. I don't know what your questions will be, so I don't want to jump ahead. But Please. I'm 75 now, and oh, I've wow. done this 55 years, and this is my. It has to be my best year yet, and I've had really good years. But, um, but the, the in my in the 60s when I was in my 60s, and a lot of my professional speaker friends were saying, um, oh, "I'm glad I had a good speaking career, did well in Sox some away." before I had to get into this internet stuff and I was thinking, are you nuts? This is this is a nothing but an advantage to us mm-hmm. because now mm-hmm. they can find you. You can practically type in tall funny woman North Carolina. I mean you can get if they've heard you speak anywhere and the and the use of the other technologies let you spread your spread your name. So at the when at that time it never occurred to me not to go back to school. I I loved going to school. But I, I got to the point where I was flying away every weekend to come back to North Carolina and speak. And then it started, then the word spread in Alabama. So I got to drive to Birmingham and Montgomery and go down to Biloxi, Mississippi. One time I charged $50 and drove to Biloxi and paid my own expenses and paid for my hotel room. I, just, I was just so pleased to be speaking and that people wanted me to speak. And uh, come be funny that uh, I had, you know, I just had the opportunities to go. Never would I have thought I could do such and such and do what I'm doing now. That was not really in the in the mindset. It's not just mine, but I didn't have a talent where you took your operatic skills and hit Broadway. Right. Or you know, that, that this was this was just being funny. I was an after dinner speaker. Well, now, me, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say, if you don't mind my asking, if this is too in the weeds of a question here, too too nosy of a question, but you talk about charging too little uh, for your for your earlier shows. When did you figure out your worth as a speaker, as an entertainer, and w- what was that aha moment that okay, I need to be charging this in order to make back everything, so it's worth my while to go on these trips? Well, in the seventies, uh, the National Speakers Association was formed. So for many, many years there, starting in '63 with my, I have the signed contract still, and and in that case, you said, oh, there are other people who who are doing this. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I went to a Chamber of Commerce banquet, or I went to a convention one time with my family in Atlanta and went to the women's program, and here was a woman, and she was hilarious. And I thought, how did she get this? <laughs> I remember sitting there with my sister and saying, why was she here and not? And I wasn't asked. We belong to the association. So I began to meet other speakers, and they began, and we were all so happy to find each other. I eventually became president of the National Speakers Association. Yep. We now have almost 4,000 members. Let me point this out to you, to you. When you plan a meeting or anyone, you have really three choices. On one end of the spectrum, you can hire um, a, a celebrity. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost you a lot of money, and they may or may not do a good job. 
because they may be a terrific writer and not a real good speaker. Couldn't hold attention. But if you need to either sell tickets or entice your members to come, you may need that celebrity name. Mm-hmm. And on the other end, way on the other end, you have the free speakers, politicians, ministers, people who want to get started. I've certainly done my share uh, for no fee at all. Um, they don't have to be good either because they're willing to come. <laughs> and if you've got to get a speaker a month for a year, 12 people, where are you going to get them? You'll almost take any breathing body. And yeah. it's a great yeah. place. Unfortunately, speaking is not like surgery. You you don't have to get it right the first time. <laughs> you can go in there and just do it. And between those two choices, the celebrity speaker with the name draw and the free speaker who will come for you. And then remember, you have a chance to get better when you have a $100 speaking fee and that's all you have. You get a $100 speaker. But they're glad for the opportunity, and then that builds up. But in the middle, between those two extremes, you have the professional speaker. And that's what I slowly became. You don't have probably a name draw unless you've written a big book um, or you've done something now. I've used YouTube to help me in that department. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to have it. The meeting planners know who you are. If you're a meeting planner for an organization or a corporation, you you make it your business to find out what speakers, and you ask other meeting planners who they had, who was good. They have they begin to have, uh, if you have 50 state organizations, a way for them to write their other uh, sister organizations and say, we had so-and-so. This was a terrific speaker. I urge you get her. So you would ask them to do that if they wrote and said, they, they got to where when you spoke they'd say, May I write a letter about you? May I tell my associates? So that was word of mouth. The catch on that is they don't come for free. Right. You pay for them. But the groups that hire you know that. That's part of their budget, just like you just figure out which dessert you're going to have, the less expensive or the more. And so my speaking literally went uh, from emceeing pageants on a weekend for $150 uh, up to 250 and by then speaking, and then you go up and say, well, we charge $250, you know, and and back in the 60s, a lot of people could barely get that out, you know, and that was, that was their budget. But then the meeting planner started saying, we'd have paid you twice as much. Wow. Uh, we had so-and-so last year, and we paid three times as much, and you, you, you know, they'd flatter you and say things, nice things about what you had done. In comparison, and so you begin to inch up. When I hired Tony Meredith, yes, forty some years ago, mm-hmm. she's now with me forty. Run my office for forty some years. I told her we were going to take my fee to five hundred. She said, "I just don't, I just don't think I can say that." She <laughs> said, "Are you think like you're worth it?" And I said, "Well, the other speakers I've met are. Let's just try it and see." And so that's how you. You find out maybe what your what your worth is, and as the years went on, speaker fees went up, and um, and of course people can't outprice themselves, and they wind up the marketplace tells them, yeah, do you want a busy schedule or do you want to speak as often as you can for experience, for free maybe even, and for years what I have done well two weeks ago I did a 
Haiti fundraiser here, and uh, right after that, I did uh, hurricane relief for the rest. You don't charge for those kind of things. Right. You, but your name can draw tickets. And so when I first, it just kept getting better and better for me, and I kept, my secret was I kept writing new material. Mm-hmm. Be- quite frankly, Please. I can sit up in my sleep on the bed and say, I'm now going to do an hour and a half show with pageant stories. But at 75, if all I have are pageant stories, I'm a one-trick pony. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be that. I want to be able to. There are two philosophies among speakers. One is you need to keep writing material. It keeps my mind fresh. That's my philosophy. Another philosophy that's worked well for people is it's easier to get a new audience than a new speech. Mm-hmm. I, and they just get one speech and write it for years. That didn't appeal to me. And I, could, I know why, because in the first 16 years, I emceed pageants almost every weekend. Yeah. That meant you were on stage two to three hours, filling whenever they needed it. And oftentimes, the judges had heard you the week before at another town. And it became a matter of pride. And I would say to them, I have my records from those years with what I... (laughs) I'm going to tell three things tonight you haven't heard. Raise your hand and let me signal when you know it to keep their attention. (laughs) And it became a challenge. So now, you go through the decades, and... um, I used to speak a lot to high school groups, mm-hmm. but I don't want to anymore. Right. But I, I, older people love my material because I'm telling the material from my life. And so then people said, you can't, this is hilarious to me, they said, you can't just go out and be funny, Jeannie. If the corporate market is going to buy you, buy your skills, then you have to have a point. You have to have a reason. They, they're not hiring you just for and although some chamber of commerces would say, just we just you come in and entertain us at our annual banquet, the convention world says we've got to got to say what are, what's the takeaway? You know, you get into all those words. So for years, I wrote a little book and I you know I did things and I talked about developing a sense of humor, which I sincerely believe can be developed. And mm-hmm. those were the steps to developing a sense of humor, not comedic talent. That's another thing. I know some funny comedians who don't have a sense of humor when there's a problem. (laughs) So now I've gone full circle because when I started doing theater shows 12 years ago, which is just mushroomed, um, the people said, just don't don't even worry about, you know, points. Speakers say to me, Jeannie, what's the difference in going to Palm Desert, which is where I was last week, at a theater show or going to Palm Desert at one of those big hotels and speaking at a convention? And the answer is simple if you're a humorist. You have to have at a convention, you have to have a point. <laughs> you have to have a message. Sometimes you have to have continuing education credits. And, they, and at a theater show, you can walk out and just be funny. You can tell any stories that you want. You plan, of course. But what I found out was after all those years in speaking, it's hard for me just to walk out without any anything that's a takeaway. Yeah. And I found out that as long as you're funny enough, you can slip in that takeaway and people appreciate it. Yeah. So I'm just having a ball, but the full circle is that now they're saying, oh, don't worry about those points, just be funny. <laughs> so whatever. 
but I, I try to slip. And then the point may be as simple as look for the humor that's around you every day. And then you can tell any stories that you want. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's what I love about you because you are a smart, smart writer with the way that you tell your stories that I don't know. And I almost don't want to ask because it's like asking the magician how he does his tricks, how much of what you write is actually happening to you in your life and how much of you is is just your imagination taking something that your wonderful husband has done and and uh magnifying it 10 times to make it funny for well, the stage you you know you there's had to be a reason for years with the humor it mm-hmm. had to have a point that they wanted told at their convention you would decide those and so i got in the habit of weaving a longer story than than the comedian and the um more of a, of a vignette Yep. Is a good for what what speakers are doing, and I try to do. You get there. I have a system that I collect. The uh, don't, it's called genie. The speakers laugh at it and call it genie's journal system, but they all <laughs> want to know how to do it. The catch is, if you just are a speaker who has a lot of information and you need a story or two, it might not justify you looking every single day for humor. Mm-hmm. I for it every day all the time, everywhere, and I have a way of recording it. And then if it's not complete, that's okay. One of my best stories that has served me well for decades is the baton story. Yes. The punchline came from something else that happened in another patchet. And I had saved the punchline, and then when I got to the baton story, you can have funny incidences, but without a punchline, without being able to set it up right, mm-hmm. ash it in later, which is what I, I love to do. So say something in the first of a program and ca- cash it in at the end. Um, co- comedians call them callbacks. I call them setups because your, your next laugh, when they realize the cleverness of what you've done, mm-hmm. is the beast. So I work on it, but they definitely people say, I say to people, I find my stories in my life experience. The truth is, often you have to embellish it or change the words around. Mm-hmm. If I hear a group of people laughing in an airport during a layover, I try to go over and sit near them. Yeah. <laughs> what are they talking about? Or I'll put my seat on recline if there are two funny people behind me. You're always looking for an idea and taking those notes down. Finding the notes and have them in order that you can capitalize on it. If you do that every day, you wind up at the end of a year with four or 500 stories. Some of them never get into your programs, but they're there. And if you read over them every December, your mind might be quick enough to pull it up if you need it, which then they think you're really clever. But do I have to stretch it? Yes. Sometime on a flight, uh, I might say something, or in a group, I might say something, and people uh, just laugh and laugh and laugh. But I realize that if Every story, I, I didn't. I just took the credit. I said this, and so then I said, and I said. So it's far better to just make up a person sitting across the aisle of the plane. Yeah, they take my funny line, that's and that's great. better. You, you have to, you have to do that to make it not be just a program about yourself. They can be your your experiences, mm-hmm. but the funny thing often puts me down. Mm-hmm. But so was there really a person that sat there and said that? No. I said it. They laughed. I knew right away I was going to give that line to another person, a fake person. 
And so that, but it's the story. Sometimes you have to write the punchline. Sometimes you get a funny, a drop dead funny line, and you have to write a story to build up to it. <laughs> I mean, you just have to say, what's the best way to use this right now? And um, so, I, this, of course, the stories are stretched. Of course, they're embellished. And then once in a while, once in a rare while, it's like God opens up the clouds and says, here, Jeannie, you have this right here, and you don't have to touch it. You can tell it that day. It's that funny. But if you tell it for years, it gets better. May I tell you the difference? I believe in a comedian and a humorist, which is what I call myself. Please, yes. Okay. Uh, the comedian's main goal is to make hopefully everybody laugh, but a majority, that would work okay. And in doing so, they can use any words. They can use any innuendos. They can even attack with a smile on their face people in the audience for race, for religion. They hit, they hit all of the controversial subjects. And if a person goes to a comedy club and then comes back and says, I didn't know it was going to be that way. Oh, come on. <laughs> we go to comedy clubs to be, you know, if you get picked on you, if you're sitting in the front, so be it. That's a comedy club. Mm-hmm. You pair that. And it's, there are, one other thing, there's more bottle bean one-liners. Yeah. Even if you look at today's sitcoms, and of course I love the Andy Griffith show. Yes. But uh, but the sitcoms, the, all of a sudden the screen twirls and you're in another place mm-hmm. because say the attention span, right, you know, they want to jump jump from place to place. Whereas the other ones, you stayed somewhere and you had a longer crafting of a story with clever words. It's a big difference. But the humorist, I think, comes in and does craft a longer story. And my thought has always been, when I leave, have I gotten the meeting planner in trouble? Mm-hmm. And you suddenly give you a political opinion when you were brought in to be funny. Yeah. And you lose half of that crowd. The first person they go to is the meeting planner, and they say to her, the CEO or him, did you know she was going to do this when you hired her? Did you know she was going to come in here and use four little words? Yeah. With everybody sitting here in our client base, this is not correct. So, see, your overriding goal to me has always been to make the meeting planner who selected me for that spot, and you're not right for all spots, but for that spot, make that person look real good for doing so. Mm-hmm. And I I think that you, you take everyday experiences, and what I want is for the people sitting there to say, she could have been a fly on the wall in my house. Yeah, I talk about being six feet two inches tall and thirteen. I'm not really talking about being tall. I'm talking about when you're perceived as different, you got to turn it into your advantage. Yeah, and laugh at yourself, accept things you can't change. Well, that goes for a shorter person. <laughs> I mean, it just people say you want them to come up when it's over and say, "I just, you know, I don't, when did I quit laughing? I I should know know this." <laughs> the uh, people people come up to me all the time now with the theater shows and usually in conventions they're rushing to the next session you know they hurriedly come but the um they come up and they're they could be in their 60s or 70s 50s and they say i want to do what you do you know that's what i want to do how did you do it and i said well if you've got if you've got some of your own you don't take somebody else's material that it it'll ruin
doing you so fast because in today's world, they will know it in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. I guess the best way I heard it put was by a meeting planner that had received. We have them come and talk to us at the speakers convention. And this particular meeting planner was saying the guy, the speaker, promoted himself as another Zig Ziglar. Oh, wow. And he said, why don't I just book Zig Ziglar? Well, you know. Exactly. Uh, why would I book you telling Zig Ziglar's material? And remember that meeting planners, now we're getting into that world more than the theater world for me, but meeting planners hear everybody. Mm-hmm. They know mm-hmm. everybody, and they can spot a phony in a heartbeat. Exactly. Now, you know, some of them may have $500, and there is somebody out there that, for example, that can do a, a, a take somebody's speech and give it word for word, and this is all they have, blah, blah, blah. But they really know it, it won't advance their career because at a certain point, people are going to say, wait a minute, you know, that's Jeannie's baton story. Yeah. That's so-and-so. Um, I'll tell you when you say, even if you say in a speech, I, I got this story from so-and-so. Now, uh, you're, you're thinking inside, I've done the right thing. I've given somebody credit. <laughs> well, no, you haven't. <laughs> like exactly. Over you can't. But the biggest thing is the audience, that puts them, well, let me put it this way. Say somebody comes into a speech late and they hear a mesmerizing story, but they came in in the middle of it. Yeah. And then yeah. they turn to the person next to them and say, did this happen to her or yeah. him? And the person says, no, they're telling a story of somebody else. You're now a step further away from the speaker. Exactly. And so, so I love speaking. And then when this other opportunity, it's totally different. So I have marketed for years to meeting planners. I mean, I, I would have rather had 50 meeting planners in front of me than 5,000 uh, just regular people who didn't plan meetings because that was a possibility of 50 more programs right. and the spinoffs. So this now I'm just going out on the theater world opened up. Somebody came to me and said, we think that you have enough name recognition. These were people in Nashville. Uh, we think your n- name has enough name recognition to sell tickets. Mm-hmm. And I said, to whom? <laughs> because I'm so focused on the conventions, the meetings. Yes, I can speak to plumbers. I can speak to here. Everybody needs a humor slot, that kind of thing. And they said, well, you've gone viral on, e- on the Internet. Serious XM is now playing you on the family comedy channel. So that had taken off and people knew. And um, and people were indeed calling our office and saying to my assistant, Tony, when is when is Jeannie coming, let's say, to Kansas City? And Tony would think, gosh, she's been in Kansas City three times this year, but then she realized but nobody could come if you didn't belong, if you didn't belong to the group, you couldn't come. Right. So we had begun to hear it when these people from Nashville said to me um, what they said. We think, and they said, you want to try it? And I said, well, you know, sure, I'll, I'll try. I hadn't gotten as far as I've gotten without taking chances. And um, so they booked a show in Dallas and in North Carolina. Oh, wow. And two pretty safe places. And, and if they had asked my assistant, she later said, she knows who calls every day and orders tapes. Where are they from? And she said, I would have said Atlanta and Dallas. And 
and anywhere, say, in North Carolina. But the advertising rates were so high in Atlanta, we went to Dallas. Right. And within two weeks of putting the tickets on sale, we sold out, and that told us two things. Number one, I had a tiny little bit of name recognition. I don't, I don't think know. it's a tiny little bit, let me tell you right well, there. Well, it's grown a little, it's really grown. But the other thing was we booked a theater that was too small. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we messed up on this. So at that point, I said, let's go for it. And we now have a full tour, and um, uh, I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, now, tonight, I have a, a, a sign-in for my ninth DVD. And when I get home, the Nashville, the Nashville people, as we call it, will be here until Sunday for us to work on everything about the tour that we could improve. And we do this once a year. We brainstorm on what we could do because we're, you know, we're just trying to learn and figure it out and do. And we thought, I do all my own Facebook. I can do things on Facebook. And, and now you hear, if you, if you go to the speakers' convention and hear the younger speakers, they're saying things such as, if you're still using a landline, you know, you're wasting your money. There's yeah. no need to have a landline. Well, the secret is you know who's booking you. Yeah. For each of my theater shows, I do radio interviews, and they want a landline. Exactly. So I'm getting rid of my landline. <laughs> or they'll say, you, nobody is still on, the, uh, has a website. Website throw that. I mean, whatever is the latest thing. And I think, well, my people aren't, this was a few years ago, aren't on Facebook yet. Yeah. You know, not, they will follow me on Facebook. And then if we learn things like, why don't we, we sat here and said, why don't we see if we can get the theaters to give my Facebook people a couple of days head start on the tickets and sit down front if they want to. And almost maybe two theaters have said no. They have to give their first stab at their patron. And, well, you take care of it and you get on there and you type in yourself and you do your own this. I don't Twitter. Right. I don't. But I have a, a woman who's now a friend. She would not let me pay her uh, who's in a wheelchair in Missouri, and she tweets about me all the time. Oh, wow. But I, I said, I feel like I should pay you something after I realized what was happening. She said, no, then it would not be valid. Right. And I see her point. I said, okay, I'll send you whatever. But I, we're just having fun with it. And... Um, that's wonderful. And I'll be real honest with you. I can go to Atlanta to the Cobb Center and have 2,000 or more people or the Birmingham. I could go to the Bass Brothers Hall in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Out there. But I have some places I go that have never heard of me. I can't sell tickets. But it's it, that is dwindling away because um, I'm really using YouTube. Well, I'm a grandma gone viral on YouTube. And I love that. And I know that this recent tour, you've been calling it the Rocking Chair, the Rocking Humor Tour. So we are over time. So I thank you so much for spending that time with me. But before I let you go, okay, last thing I would talk about, I would be rude. It would be rude of me to not ask, how is your femur doing? And how are you doing? <laughs> well, when I, bro- when I broke my femur right above the knee all the way across, and they said, all oh, this rehab, oh, it was awful. And then I had complications. And so it was. You know, sitting here one day watching a ball game on TV, I said to left brain, I, help me please hobble over and get, put my leg up and get put me in that rocking chair and bingo. I called the Nashville people. I said, I know what we can do. We can, I could go back out on tour now. Mm-hmm. I have somebody to help me. Kane, 
wheelchair and then a rocking chair on stage, and we renamed the tour the rocking chair. So see, when you when you do that kind of thing and keep going, you are what you say, and that is look for the humor in everyday situations. People say we give away the rocking chair. Yeah. And it, and it increases the database. <laughs> I mean, we give away the rocking chair, and I've had so many people say, "Well, Jeannie." Wouldn't it be cheaper to get one good rocking chair and use it in every speech? Well, duh, you can't get a rocking chair in an overhead bin. <laughs> on so we're just having a, a real good time. We have a book coming out next year. We have um, that ninth DVD that I'm going to the signing for tonight. It's an hour 50. Now, Left Brain, you started this with by asking about him. So I'll, he says, it's just too long. You've done it again. He's taken <laughs> too long. And I said, why? He said, because you always tape extra stories in case something goes wrong with the equipment. And then you leave them in there. And this new tape's an hour 50. And I said, let me tell you something, honey. The people who buy my stuff are very smart. They can put it on pause and come back later. <laughs> it's an hour 50, and I'm not going back in there and change it now. So we're just, he's 81, and I'm 75, and we're just having a good time. Well, this was more than a good time, Mrs. Robertson. This was wonderful. Uh, please come back when that book comes out because I think there'll be a lot of stuff to talk about there. And uh, this was just a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Keep everybody laughing. Thank you, Jeannie. That was such a pleasure. And next time you're up here in town visiting Jane Tucker. Did I, did I get the accent right? I don't think I did. I could do the accent in ventriloquism, but sometimes when I'm just reading my script and trying to do it, it doesn't work. Next time you're in here, up here in New York, please come and say hello. Be sure to get in touch. Call me and we will meet up. Uh, I would be happy to show you around and give you the Matt Bailey tour of New York City and uh, hang out with you a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for spending the time that you did with me. And of course, thank you to Jim Stafford. I want to give him another shout out for reminding me of Jeannie and, and for the really what was the suggestion. I don't think he I don't know if he meant it as a suggestion because we were talking about a whole what all these different entertainers do. But I always have an ear to the ground about cool people to interview. And so thank you, Jim. You may not have uh, you may not have intended when you said that to think that I would interview her. But uh, this turned out really great. And I have you to thank for it. So thank you again, Jim. That is it for us today. Make sure to follow us on social media using at Talk for Two and subscribe in iTunes for more. You can also check out talkfor2.com. That is where everything originates from. I call it the mothership. And to use the Star Wars reference, all the little ships that come, I'm blanking on what they're called, all the little ships that come off the big thing, you know, that's what I consider all the iTunes and Stickter. It's, it's, everything's at talkfor2.com and you can find it on iTunes and Stickter and, and wherever, you know, just Google me and talk for two and you'll find it. Email me at matt at talkfor2.com. And of course, thanks again to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions. Steve, I will see you at CAX and the Tangent Bound Network. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>